Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, we're going to be looking at what's new in physics, including how a data analysis technique originally developed for X-ray astronomy is being adapted for use in biomedical imaging. But first, Physics World's Margaret Harris discovers how archaeologists are using gamma-ray spectroscopy to look for buried structures. Gamma-ray spectrometers are normally used to detect radioactivity at nuclear power plants and waste sites. But it turns out, identifying areas of contamination isn't the only thing they can do. I'm joined today by a pair of experts who've been using portable gamma-ray spectrometers for an entirely different application, in archaeology. With me in the virtual studio are Stuart Black, an associate professor of isotope geochemistry at the University of Reading, and Victoria Robinson, a PhD student in archaeology at Reading and the lead author of a recent study that brings these very different fields, radiation safety, archaeology, and geochemistry, together. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Hi, I'm Stuart. Good to meet you. So, Stuart, as I understand it, in your field you're using the isotopes found in specific objects or locations as kind of a, a marker to tell us something about where they've come from or other aspects of their history. Could you maybe give us an introduction to how that works? Yeah, sure. Um, most materials, whether it be sort of rocks or soils or even sort of uh, bones and things like that, they contain very small amounts of naturally occurring radioactive elements, um, mostly in uh, uranium, thorium and the potassium series. Um, and those, uh, those elements uh, naturally accumulate and they're normally in very small concentrations. Um, and of course, we can use those in lots of different ways. Um, uh, for example, um, they're used quite routinely throughout archaeology and, uh, and further back in time to date those remains, for example, radioactively dating them using uranium isotopes, for example, and thorium isotopes. So there's a really good example of, uh, of how, they're, how they're used. And those materials um, are available um, for detection, of course. And that's one of the things that uh, Victoria has been using as part of this study. Is, uh, is detecting these naturally occurring uh, radioactive elements in materials that are in the subsurface environment. Um, and it's all about the looking at the contrast between those materials and the soils that are around them, because obviously they contain naturally occurring radioactive material as well. So I guess you're looking for, for differences then. So, I'm, I mean, I know Cornwall has a lot of naturally radioactive granite, for example. So I guess you could maybe tell whether a building was made out of Cornish granite or granite from Aberdeen or somewhere like, like that. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So you're looking at, so if you've got material that, that is naturally rich in um, radioactive materials like uh, granites, uh, but also manufactured materials as well. So things like uh, bricks, perhaps, or um, uh, metalliferous deposits that have been uh, manufactured so they, they've been uh, sort of slag materials and uh, materials that are sort of uh, products of, uh, of human use then those accumulate um, those radioactive materials as well so yeah so we're looking at the contrast between those materials and the materials that they're um, that are encased in so normally in soil or, or other, other sort of deposits then yeah that's what we've been doing so Victoria, I want to bring you in now. Um, as I mentioned, you're a PhD student in archaeology at Reading, 
But I understand your background is actually in the nuclear industry, um, specifically radiation safety, um, working for a company called Nuvia. Um, I guess in a way you're also interested in detecting isotopes that aren't in their usual place. Is that right? Very much so. This whole project really started by looking at a particular technology that Nuvia uses known as Groundhog, which we apply for surveying generally nuclear licensed sites who are world away from the field of archaeology where we're looking for generally um, man-made radioactive contaminants such as cesium-137 in the environment. And then we uh, carry out field surveys to see if there are any hotspots and if they are above acceptable levels and whether or not remediation is required. Um, so I've, I'm very familiar with this and its application in a very man-made uh, scenario. And it's been really interesting to kind of explore this in an application where we're looking very much at naturally occurring radioactivity. So how did you get this project come together? I mean, who contacted you? Did you say, have you always wanted to study archaeology, Victoria? Or how did this collaboration come about? Very much so. Archaeology and paleontology, to be a utter uh, cliche, has always been a passion since I was very, very small. Um, and it was actually uh, attending a lecture by Peter Larson, who's head of the Black Hills Institute in America. Um, he presented a lecture at um, in Oxford and um, very fascinating and I kind of almost flippantly asked oh have you got any jobs going and he was said well you know um, never say never and I said oh, I'm just joking uh, there's no way um, the nuclear industry and paleontology could ever mesh and he said oh you know if you want to find a way you will and I came across some papers where they were looking at uranium dating of dinosaur fossils and I thought Oh, if it's um, accumulating in levels where you might be able to date reliably fossils, could it accumulate in concentrations sufficient enough to allow detection uh, using sodium iodide type detectors? And then moving forward and engaging with Stuart, who suggested it might be uh, easier to start off in an archaeological context where you've got uh, very near surface deposits and looking at the contrast there, as, as Stuart mentioned already, looking at accumulations of naturally occurring radioactivity, and particularly uranium and thorium in things like brick, are not even necessarily accumulation, but um, depletion. Because we're just looking at a contrast, if you're bringing in uh, foreign material from um, a different region, uh, region, as you mentioned, uh, looking at granites, if they're imported into an area which is naturally depleted, you will see that contrast quite nicely. I think I've heard about this sort of importation of stone happening to do with Stonehenge. You know, there's there's some of the stones there come from other places that are nowhere near the Wiltshire Plain where the stones are, are erected still today. And is that some of the sort of type of thing you could potentially find out about? Yes, it's, that's slightly different, I think, insofar as um, if you're looking at provenance, you're probably looking to um, take samples and looking at the uh, ratios of different isotopes and it'll give you a more unique signature. There are uh, examples where people have been able to say um, characterise granitic columns um, from uh, places in central London even uh, where they've been able to take samples, analyse them, look at the ratios of different radioactive isotopes and compare those ratios to the uh, radiochemical composition of known locations where the, the granite was mined 
um, and comparing those and working out where the source material is from. Um, but in this context, we're very much just looking, much like normal geophysical surveying, where we're looking simply for the contrasts. Um, this is what uh, this project more focuses on. So this project, I think you mentioned that then it was good to do sort of close to the surface archaeology. You picked a particular site for this project, which is the Roman city of Silchester, or what remains of it. Stuart, perhaps you could introduce us to, to Silchester. You know, so what was what was it like in its Roman heyday? What are some things that you can be looking for there? Yeah, okay, that's that's a really good question. Um, so Silchester has uh, has been um, actively excavated at the University of Reading for for several decades, and uh, and so that's one of the reasons why we we chose that site because there's a lot of ground truthing um, evidence that's already taken place there. So we know um, a lot about the subsurface archaeology there based on previous excavations, uh, as well as having lots of other geophysical surveys um, that have been uh, taken place. And so it, it offered a really natural laboratory, effectively, for us to test out the, uh, the portable gamma system. So, for example, there'd been uh, lots of uh, magnetometry surveys already done uh, to look at subsurface features, as well as ground penetrating radar surveys. Um, and so that's what we wanted to do initially, was to test that out. Um, but the Roman site of uh, Silchester has been, was occupied from very early in the occupation of, of, uh, of Roman Britain from 43 AD. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot of evidence for even a pre-Roman settlement, as well as uh, settlement going all the way through the Roman period until the Romans left you know, in the middle of the uh, of the fifth century um, AD, and so there's there's a very rich cultural history there, which meant there was lots of building materials potentially, lots of structures, lots of uh, evidence of uh, of metal working and 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 so on and processing. So lots of targets that we could potentially um, choose to then uh, test out the the gamma system. That's one of the reasons, main reasons why we went to the site. So I understand you selected four different areas within Silchester to survey. You know, maybe you could introduce us to those those four areas and sort of the, the things you expected to find there. There's a there's there's several different uh, targets that we were really interested in. One was, as I said, the, uh, something to do with um, uh, sort of metal working because there's lots of very strong geophysical anomalies um, in the, in those sites and uh, from the magnetometry. And we wanted to test out whether that would be uh, really responsive with the gamma system. Um, and then some key areas of, uh, of where there are lineations in buildings, you know, lineation features which have been detected. Um, and rather interestingly, on one of those, um, the gamma detector didn't detect very much in the way of, uh, of that material. Uh, being uh, uh, there wasn't a sufficient contrast. And, but that is really interesting in the sense that it might indicate that the, the radioactivity content of the material and the, and the soil are very similar. And so in that sense, it tends to suggest they're not things like uh, brick-lined building material. Um, and so there was lots of different sites that, that we, we, we chose. We, we could have chosen lots. But the four that we, we, we did choose were, were all very specific targets that we, um, that we thought would be really, really useful. Uh, Victoria, you can probably sort of fill us in on more of the, the different sites if you want to. Willingly, uh, yes. It it was certainly an interesting experience that the sites we thought 
wouldn't be successful were and thought the ones we deliberately picked because we thought we would get a nice contrast we didn't um and that was really interesting in of itself but it was really exciting uh, so we covered the more urban area uh, where we didn't get the results we thought and we also saw limited success in the area where there were known cremations and inhumations which again didn't quite yield the results we were hoping for but what we've gained instead is a really interesting insight as to how we might make the methodology better at the minute when i first did the surveys i was using the methodology we use in the nuclear industry where we're looking for gamma emitters that are much much stronger um, and generally more concentrated so we can get away with carrying out these surveys at one meter spacings which are actually quite large um, but the targets we're looking for here and particularly when you're looking at cremations and inhumations are much much smaller in comparison so uh, there certainly is an intent to go back to the site but change our surveying methodology to use much narrower transects and have a much higher density of measurements to yield better data. So any anomalies where we may have overlooked them will hopefully become clearer. But in other areas, such as um, an area containing a Roman temple, we got absolutely beautiful data where we saw a really nice depletion of activity along the lines of the wall of the temple, which was... Um, really exciting when that data kind of came out uh, from the screen. So now we want to know why that is. So again, perhaps looking, uh, moving forward at revisiting the site, taking samples from the temple wall and the surrounding substrate, analysing this um, or completing a radiochemical analysis to see why we're seeing what we're seeing. And again, how can we use that data to refine the methodology and moving it from something that's quite robust and easy to apply in the nuclear industry to something a bit more refined in that archaeological context. So you mentioned sort of one metre apart. and Tell me a little bit more about what you actually did when you surveyed the, the sites. I've got this picture in my head of, of you striding around a field with something that looks a little bit like a metal detector, but that's probably not quite accurate. Uh, you're not too far off, actually. Um, we use, well, the groundhog system itself, it's quite a rugged system and we've got um, a sodium iodide crystal detector and a carbon fibre tube with spectrometric capability so we can have an understanding of what we're seeing um, and it's the configuration I had was um, a, a portable tube with the detector system inside which I carried next to me with a backpack with GPS system and all the supporting electronics and they say just walking at a very steady pace of one metre a second up and down the field and collecting this data. Um, in addition, I was also able to survey some of the sites in a collimator. So putting that detector in a lead shield effectively, so almost blinkering and limiting what the detector can see. So you're picking up less of the surrounding activity and only looking at what's directly underneath. Again, to see if that would improve data quality. Um, but another thing we can look at moving forward is scaling this up um, because we can use multiple detectors that are vehicle mounted to cover much larger areas. So we do this for things like beach surveys or for surveying very large areas of land. So we can have perhaps look at whether or not we can scale this up and perhaps survey using banks of detectors to cover a much larger area.
So, you know, in your paper, um, which by the way is open access, it's in the Journal of Archaeological Prospection, and it's very readable even for non-experts, um, your focus is really on, as you say, validating this new technique, showing what it can do on a site where things are already quite well known. It's a proof of principle. You've told us a little bit about what some possibilities are for the future. What are your next steps, and what do you hope to do with this technique? First of all, very much keen to revisit Silchester. As I alluded to earlier, we've kind of got a, ref- a refined methodology where um, we're hoping to improve the quality of the data by um, having a much higher resolution um, to look at much smaller targets. We did consider pre- uh, looking at whether or not to repeat the studies in a collimated system, but uh, looking at the original data that didn't yield as many benefits other than an improved workout moving 45 kilos of lead up and down a field. So that's certainly one of the next steps and also to expand um, and perhaps um, start looking at whether or not the system can be applied in a more paleontological context and whether or not we can measure any differences and contrasts in radioactive or the concentrations of radioactive material um, in dinosaur fossils to help narrow down where one might target an excavation. And in terms of, as I said, you're you're just validating this technique now, but what are some things that you could do with this technique that you can't get with other things? Or does it make it easier or quicker? I mean, minus the 45 kilos of of lead, perhaps. (laughs) Uh, I think the the value of this is um, to add to the toolbox of existing techniques, um, because... Most geophysical techniques that are already very well established do have sensitivities. For example, um, it might pick up underground metal pipe work or um, you'll get distortions and disturbances in the data because of the presence of um, nearby cars that drive past or fences or um, metal drums, whatever that might be. So you have to, to get the best quality data. It's always useful to draw on several techniques which have different susceptibilities and strengths. And it might be that using radiation surveying will add to that. Um, And in addition, you all, because we have that spectrometric capability, some um, geological characterization of the site as well. So it's kind of getting as much data as you can with as little effort, ideally. Stuart, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, no, I think that's a, a really good summary that, that, that Victoria's just said there. The, uh, the, the idea of, uh, of integration of multiple techniques as well is really important, I think, that the, the, you know, the, all geophysical methods have advantages and disadvantages. And, and in, it's exactly the same with portable gamma surveys. Um, but the, 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 there is some extra additional information that we can get from the gamma surveys, such as the, you know, the, the actual radionuclide contents of what is actually there, rather than it's just a, a radiation signal. It's like, well, is it uranium? Is it thorium? Is it potassium? And those types of materials do change. You know? So, for example, a brick will have a different distribution to something like granite, for example. So we can then perhaps tell something about the type of material that's under, under, underneath the, um, uh, the ground relatively uh, easily or more easily than some of the other uh, geophysical techniques. But then trying to integrate all uh, different techniques will be a really uh, key element. And, I, and we're hoping that Victoria can finish that element off with her in her thesis, if, the, if that's the, the final chapter or whatever, 
was to say overlay what what the ground penetrating radar does uh, looks like as well as the the gamma survey and and try and integrate that data and see if we can get a much better picture of of what the subsurface uh, features look like well i look forward to to hearing what you find with that those future studies uh, victoria and Stuart, thank you very much for coming on the podcast no thank you very much for for having us it's been great yeah. thank you very much From the very old to the new, I'm joined by my colleague Tammy Freeman to talk about some of the latest research that we've reported on the Physics World website. Hi, Tammy. Hi, Hamish. So, I know you're keen to talk about a possible way of controlling the weather. Yeah, well, this sounds a bit like science fiction, but researchers in Japan reckon that we could turn the chaotic nature of weather to our advantage. And we could use these chaotic properties to prevent extreme events like tornadoes or heavy downpours. How is that possible? Well, well it, does seem, it does seem incredible, doesn't it? But yeah. it, it's based on the idea of the butterfly effect. And this is the idea that the flap of a butterfly's wings could lead to a chain of events that cause a devastating storm, at least in principle. And the reason this is possible is that weather can be a highly chaotic system that can easily flip between different states when nudged, even in a small way. So that butterfly flapping its wings, you know, could be just the nudge that it takes to send the weather um, off on a completely different direction. So now, um, Takamasa Mayoshi and Kiwen Sun at the Riken Center for Computational Science in Kobe, Japan, have used computer simulations to show that if we give weather a series of gentle nudges, we can prevent these flips from happening. So in principle, we could, we could keep having nice weather and, and stop extreme weather events from suddenly occurring. And that sounds great, but how can you actually nudge the weather? Well, that was that was the, the, the sort of bit that left me scratching my head about this. And to be honest, um, Mayoshi and Sun don't really seem to cover that in their paper. Or if, they're, if they did, it wasn't sort of explained in a, in a way that uh, uh, a non-expert like me could understand. But um, another expert has suggested that one way these nudges could be made is to take energy out of the atmosphere using strategically placed wind turbines. So I suppose the idea here is that, you know, these wind turbines actually can slow down the wind and that could have an effect on um, on weather nearby or or even far away. And, um, you know, if we if we put these wind turbines in the right place, it's possible that maybe we could avoid bad weather or who knows, even, you know, sort of make it rain more often than it normally would. 
Um, yeah, it, it, it sounds a bit bonkers, but, you know, the thing is, we're, we're only really learning uh, about the dynamics of Earth's atmosphere, um, unfortunately, because we have to, um, to, to get a grip on uh, climate change. So who knows? Maybe this is possible. And, and you can read more about this idea on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Weather Could Be Controlled by Making Tiny Changes to a chaotic system. So now, Tammy, you're going to explain how biomedical researchers also in Japan have used technology developed for space observations to solve a medical imaging problem. So what is this imaging problem? Okay, so medical imaging techniques often use tracers or imaging probes to visualize particular molecules or processes inside the body. Now, if you can use several tracers at once, this could obviously increase the amount of information you can get from one image. This is already possible with fluorescent tracers, but unfortunately, because biological tissue scatters and attenuates visible light, it can be difficult to perform quantitative measurements with fluorescent dyes, particularly if you want to look deep in the body. So another option is to use radionuclides as tracers, and these emit X-rays and gamma rays which could be imaged using uh, methods such as SPECT or PET scanning, um, even deep inside the body. However, imaging multiple radio tracers at once is tricky. So for starters, there's far fewer radionuclides available for imaging compared with the number of fluorescent dyes, but also their emission lines can be similar or even overlap, which makes it hard to separate the signals. So to do this multi-radio tracer imaging, you need a really sensitive detector with high spatial resolution and good enough energy resolution to resolve potential overlaps between multiple tracers. So this is why the biomedical researchers, led by Atsushi Yagishita from the Kavli Institute for Physics and Mathematics of the Universe and the National Cancer Center Japan, they turned to their colleagues in astronomy and, and so how, does, how did the astronomers help? What sort of technology have they developed um, for, for, for doing this sort of imaging? Okay, so, so two ways, basically. So firstly, um, the researchers created a biomedical imaging system based on a cadmium telluride detector, which was originally developed for space observations of hard X-rays and gamma rays. And this detector has the, the required high energy resolution. And then to improve their system further, they also employed a spectral analysis method that's used in X-ray astronomy. And this method eliminates noise and allowed them to generate spectra and images using only radiation from a target radio tracer, so without any contamination from other emitters in the sample. So how well did the new imaging system work, Tammy? Could it separate the different tracers? Yeah, it worked well. So. The team assessed the quantitative imaging performance when they were imaging multiple tracers, and they found the system could separate signals from a mixed sample, and they confirmed that the intensity of the images um, correctly represented the expected level of radioactivity. They tested the spatial resolution of the system by imaging a phantom containing tiny holes filled with solutions of different radionuclides, um, they found the spatial resolution was roughly 300 micron, which they say is similar to state-of-the-art small animal spec systems. 
And finally, the researchers used the system to image a mouse that had been injected with three types of radionuclides, which located in different parts of the animal's body. So the spectrum that the system obtained clearly showed separate emission lines from the three radio tracers. Also, the reconstructed images showed individual signals from the tracers in the animal's thyroid tissue and lymph nodes. Um, and if you look at the article on Physics World, there's a really nice image there that shows the three separate signals. And, and so what's next? Uh, I, I mean, I understand with, you know, developing uh, new medical techniques, there's a very long road before those um, methods can actually be used in a hospital. So what, what are the team doing next? Well, interestingly, they're looking at a slightly different project as well. So they plan to use the imager to visualize um, the radioactive drugs that are used in a cancer treatment called targeted radionuclide therapy. So these drugs are injected into the body and they localize in cancer tissue and they emit gamma rays or X-rays. So the idea is to use the imaging system to study the distribution and activity of these drugs after injection in the body. So, I mean, that's a slightly different application, but could lead, for example, to you know, help them develop better drugs for this treatment. Well, that's great. That's really interesting, Tammy. And um, you can read more about this um, on the Physics World website. And um, the article is called Researchers Exploit Astronomy Technology for Biomedical Imaging. So, Hamish, you also want to talk about a new way of getting more light into ultra-thin solar cells. So why do we need ultra-thin solar cells? Well, there's a number of good reasons. Um, I mean, first of all, thinner devices require much less material to make, and they're lighter and potentially flexible. And so, you know, that's good for a number of reasons, um, you know, less energy and resources going into making solar cells. And that's important because, you know, we're going to need lots and lots of solar cells in the future. And making them flexible means uh, that there would be a wider range of applications, such as wearable electronics. And ultra-thin devices also have uh, electronic advantages when it comes to transporting electrons. Um, they get around some problems that thicker solar cells suffer from. So there are, you know, some very good reasons to develop ultra-thin solar cells. But I'm guessing there's also a downside? Oh, yeah, there, there always is. Um, the, the, the problem now, when we say ultra thin, we're talking about, you know, sort of micron scale um, thicknesses. And the problem there is that the material that's supposed to absorb sunlight is so thin that most of the sunlight travels straight through without being absorbed. And you also lose um, some sunlight being reflected uh, off the material. So um, the efficiency um, is very, very low. But researchers have, have found a way around this. The idea is that you deflect incoming sunlight into the plane of the ultra-thin cell, where the sunlight essentially becomes trapped and then absorbed. So that makes sense. But how can this be done? Well, one way to do this is to etch an ordered pattern onto the surface of the solar cell. And this, you know, essentially behaves like a diffraction grating that diffracts light into the plane of the uh, solar cell. But the problem here is that this only works well for light at certain wavelengths and angles of incidence. And uh, a sort of 
alternative approach, which I suppose is very different, um, is to etch a completely disordered pattern onto the solar cell. Now this will diffract light at all angles and wavelengths, but it's not very efficient at getting that light into the plane of the device because, you know, essentially it's spreading the light out everywhere. But now, Marion Florescu and Esther Alarcon Yado and colleagues at the University of Surrey, Imperial College London, and Amolf's Center for Nanophotonics in the Netherlands have come up with a really neat compromise between order and disorder, and this helps them maximize the amount of sunlight that ends up in the plane of their solar cell. So I gather they use something called hyperuniform disordered patterns. What are those? Well, these are, are ordered patterns that have a bit of disorder introduced. So one of them is, it looks like a honeycomb in which each cell of the honeycomb has been, you know, sort of squashed or stretched out in a different way. And essentially what this does is it gives you the best of both worlds. It gives you an ordered pattern that's good at diffracting light over a fairly wide range of, uh, of wavelengths that, you know, basically correspond to the light coming from the sun. And what they found is when they etched these patterns on the surface of a one micron thick piece of silicon, they found that about 66% of the sunlight was absorbed. And that's compared to 25% for an unetched surface. So that looks pretty good for the, you know, the sort of first test of this uh, technology. So where can you find out more about these ordered, disordered patterns? Well, on the Physics World website, of course, just look for the headline, Honeycomb-like nano-patterning boosts efficiency of ultra-thin solar cells. Thanks for being on the podcast, Tammy. Thanks, Amish. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Victoria Robinson, Stuart Black, Margaret Harris, and Tammy Freeman for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do have a listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester speaks to physicists and engineers about the latest breakthroughs in fusion research and how they're working to make commercial fusion energy a reality. The episode is called Jet's Record Result and the Quest for Fusion Energy, and you can listen to it on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.